Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this episode, Keisha Kijano of Label Sessions talks to Jordan Ostapchuk. Jordan is a leader in investment strategy, research and innovation in infrastructure, currently with Omas in Toronto, Canada. Over to Jordan and Keisha. Perfect. Hi. Nice to have you here. Thank you. I'm, I'm good. How are you? I'm well. Good to hear. Um, I guess, first things first, please could you introduce yourself to Maven Sessions? For sure. My name is Jordan Ostrovchuk, and I am a capital designer. So, I mean, that leads to the great next question of, so you've coined the term capital designer to describe your work. You said it's kind of bridging the gap between strategy and innovation in capital allocation. What does being a capital designer mean to you? And kind of what does, or do you think we'll be seeing more people use this term? No, it's a great question and apologies for, you know, having a leading intro. Um, but capital design is a way really to bridge two incredibly important forces in the world, capital and design. So if we think about capital, um, without it, we quite literally would not have any of the modern world, these buildings, the internet, the programs that sit atop of it. And if you think about it from that perspective, capital is one of the most powerful forces of the last thousand years. Um, and I think it's still broadly misunderstood. And then the second is design, which you know the standard definition really is devising courses of action aimed at changing existing situations into preferred ones. But really what that means is our capacity to imagine alternative futures and then do things to bring them into existence. And I think that is one of the very few things that sets us as humans apart from all the other species. So if you think about it, it's actually, you know, first of all, a very positive story. I think people think of capital and capitalism as the same thing, which they're not necessarily. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation about capitalism rightly so right now, but I'm, I'm thinking from capital perspective, really it requires a collective belief that tomorrow will be better than today, right? Like I loan you money to go start a bakery. I think that you're going to be very successful at selling sourdough. And not only will you be able to pay your expenses, you will be able to pay me back. That, that's a kind of a collective positive outcome. And capital, you know, through this idea of financialization, um, you know, the valuation of, of different businesses or different things is really a way to compare vastly different things, right? And then judge them on their potential for future benefits. So what you're seeing is that as we live in an ever more abstract society, um, this financialization and capital actually becomes a really interesting and powerful tool to compare, you know, what what the cash flow of a pub might be to the Amazonian rainforest to a bridge over here. Uh, it, it's actually one of the only tools that we have to make sense of this very abstract world that we live. In. Um, and then, but it's it's also a very quantitative exercise. So. You know, at the at the pinnacle of this capital allocation, you have these institutional investors, you know, insurance funds, pension funds, and the like, who you know collectively allocate trillions of dollars. Um, so my idea was like, well, what if we took this incredibly powerful force and introduced design and several specific design capabilities, which I know you you and the team are very familiar with. You know, things like foresight, abduction, synthesis, prototyping, innovation, um, really by understanding how to expand the set of options for capital allocators, you can see things you otherwise wouldn't have. And then it, it changes the, the potential outcome set that you have. Um, so you can think about it this way, right? Design makes choices and investment makes decisions. Um, and they, they definitely work better together, right? And my hope to your, to your question, yes, I do hope that capital design eventually becomes an established field, you know, just like service design or proposition design, because ultimately when you have designers and investors working as a team, you can create incredible value. Very true. And so what you kind of said about how and you take these big things and how to sort them in order to make the decisions, right? Exactly. I guess one kind of thing that we'd want to ask is to get to these decisions, how important is storytelling and data to you in your role? Vastly important, but two different things, right? Storytelling and data. And I would say that when people make a mistake, they usually mistake one for the other. So, for example, um, 
I think climate change is a great example, which we talked about, where it's primarily a data-driven argument right now, right? We've got charts and graphs and curves and everything, but I don't know that that's necessarily all that's needed. And what's definitely missing from that discussion is storytelling and kind of within that like narrative, art, culture, self-interest, psychology, all of that other stuff that goes into how as humans, we actually make decisions. I mean, if you think about where you spend your free time, when you're watching Netflix, you're generally watching something with a story arc and not just a PowerPoint presentation, right? So, you know, storytelling and data are both valued. Um, but it's interesting in coming from my context, in my previous experience working with institutions, um, you know, I think people would say that people would agree that storytelling is important, but no one would admit to calling it storytelling in the moment, right? Because that sounds fluffy. But if you think about all the best pitches, the best ideas, the best strategies all play to our innate sense of narrative, right? They have a protagonist, there's a conflict, there's a climax, there's a resolution. There are elements of a story. Um, and maybe people don't realize that when they're doing it, but just having the data, I think, isn't enough. However, and this is where I've seen people, you know, maybe from the other side of the field coming into it, if all you have is a story and it lacks credibility and rigor, I, I also don't think it's going to be successful. So, you know, in the field of capital design, in, in just like the pitches, I think it is important to have both. Like you need to understand, you know, what's the value of this company? What's the potential growth? What are the demographics? All that stuff. But then put yourself in the shoes of someone who might be using this product. A random example, how might millennials' attitudes towards car ownership change the way you think about an EV charging business, right? There's not necessarily data, but you can, you can paint a really compelling story, not necessarily to convince, but just to articulate and frame how this might work in a particular world. So storytelling and data are both important, but they're two different things and you need to know when to use one, the other, or both combined. Do you think currently that we have a particular kind of skew as to using one or the other, or do you think it's pretty balanced or depends on the circumstance? I would say very skewed toward data, right? It's easy to hide in the data because it's the data, right? And whether it's your own data or you've hired a consultant to provide the data, there's a sense that, well, the numbers don't lie, right? That's the numbers and, you know, that's the market. But there's probably, and this is this is a famous quote, like, you know, more fiction written in Excel than in Word, right? Once you get out to 30, 40 years and the, the assumptions that are based in there, yes, it's still data, uh, but to the extent that it, it reflects reality, who knows, right? And it is not, it's not to say that it's wrong, but... This is an interesting thing that I've come across and been looking at is the difference between or the spectrum really of certainty, risk, and uncertainty. So certainty are things that you know are going to happen. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. Um, risk is, you know, the chance that it might rain. Like you have a pretty good sense. It's not going to be perfect, but you can reasonably quantify it. And that uncertainty is like, is an asteroid going to hit the earth? You, you can't quantify that and nor should you, right? And I think this is where a lot of teams get into trouble. Um, both innovation teams and investment teams where they try to over quantify. So they, they take things that are just things that you can never know by their own nature. And you try and assess a probability and you give yourself the false comfort of, well, we've covered that. There's a small probability, but it's, it's really disingenuous. Um, so I think as you know, designers and innovators, that's a really key role that they can play, but also something that they should remember is admitting when you can't know something and admitting when you can know you just don't know yet, right? That's a very, very, very important distinction. Um, and anyone who's on the other side of that, who is really attuned to storytelling and data should be able to pick that up. Do, do you have kind of advice, that the always the other way around as well, for people who are very cheap? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great question. And I think, um, well, Roger Martin has been a longstanding influencer in this space where He's talking about data can only tell you what happened in the past. It can never tell you what happened in the future. So if you, by design, most strategies, most people want to know what's going to happen in the future, you can't use data, right? Like it's just, and he, he kind of sets it up that way where you really need the ability to use what he calls abductive reasoning. Um, and you can think about it like a doctor where a doctor can look at a set of symptoms and kind of infer through logic and through a little bit of creativity and kind of past experience, what the underlying cause might be. So it's not a, it's not an exact prediction. There's not a full set of data, but it's still workable enough that you can go and do something concrete with that. Uh, and that's something I see where, you know, people from the innovation or design side come with full on story and they'll talk about 
you know, going back to the future of EV charging and flying cars, but it's so abstract that you can't actually do something with it. And then in the investment world, you know, unless there's something for sale at the end of the day, you can't really do something with the data. And I think that's a really important grounding factor for people that want to influence if you have an innate storytelling and, you know, scenario building capability, still understanding what the people who you'll be working with and the people who will use that information, what they're designed or what their roles are designed to do and what they're effectively being paid to do. And it's buy or sell or, you know, run the business a little bit differently. So always bringing it back and grounding it. You can still start big. You can still entertain different futures. But then I think you can take it and narrow it down and say, we can give you a little bit or a lot more confidence that this decision versus this, this decision, because we understand the specificities of those decisions um, that you can make. I see that very much reminds me of almost like the, the back to the future. Like, what do we see in, I think it's like 2021, 20, the 2020-something. And then it's like, okay, that's great. That's a cool exercise, but it's almost just for uh, entertainment. Like, if you really wanted to do something with it, again, what I'm saying, like, what are you selling? What What is, mm-hmm. otherwise it just becomes like an imagination thing. For sure, for sure. Almost the next thing that I would ask is a lot of these things, whether it's data whether it's the storytelling seems to be almost if you're focusing on just one it's almost like a communication error but i kind of just wanted to ask so in your experience what's the most common communication error that you observed in in large companies and how do you think how would you suggest we go about fixing it this is going to sound stupid or simple but the biggest error is that people use powerpoint when they should use word right and because there's nothing as powerful as a well-crafted argument, right? Back to the time of Socrates rhetoric, where in a paragraph, you have a claim, a reason, evidence, you know, you acknowledge and respond to other opinions, and then you kind of have a warrant that sums it up. Like that is an airtight, ironclad way to make a make a case. And, you know, you have the example of Amazon, where they only do the three-page press release rather than a PowerPoint. And it, you just be able to communicate things so much more effectively with less time, cut through the fluff, and in a way that everybody could understand. And this is, you know, nobody's nobody's individual fault. It's really a cultural thing that I see at a lot of organizations, but it's a fundamental error because, you know, I think as humans, we're limited in our capacity to process information, right? You can only process one stream. And if you think about PowerPoint, there's not only the words, but then there's where things are on the slide. There's kind of a hierarchy of importance. And, you know, I think, and even the people writing it can get a little bit confused as to what they're trying to say. And perhaps this is me going through my PhD process right now, where I have a professor who just, you write in paragraphs and you can deconstruct every paragraph. Every word has a specific meaning and writing is thinking. So the error is both in, you know, the sending and the receiving of the message, because I think the sender uh, doesn't get the benefit of having to fully think through the idea that they're pitching. And then the receiver doesn't have the benefit of something that's very clearly articulated and argued for. I don't know how we change that, but <laughs> there's a there's an example from my, you know, one of my previous roles where we were trying to do something in an organization. We had all these PowerPoints and flashy pitch decks and stuff. But the thing that got the most attention from kind of the board and the executive suite, we drafted a press release as if the idea that we wanted to do, a competitor did it and launched it in the market. And we weren't exactly clear on whether this was a real press release or not. We just sent it out and we got more emails, more phone calls about, oh my goodness, what are we doing about this? Then, you know, any amount of very, very flashy, you know, models and PowerPoints. It's a great example that, you know, Ian and I worked on way back. I think that's incredible. And actually such a, such a great story about sort of, again, that emotional response, how to get action. Yeah, no, incredible. Um, I think here, well, here at Label Sessions, we've heard you speak about the concept of design diligence. Um, can you shed light on sort of what that entails? And also, in your opinion, how important should design diligence be for business today? Great question. So in you know my previous roles in strategy and innovation, we, we've often tackled those things from the inside out, you know, and that's building it up from scratch. So what's the innovation process? What's the governance model? How do you prioritize ideas and collect them? How do you, you know, design, discover, deliver, all of that good stuff? And I think we did that enough times where we know what would make a good innovation model. 
But then in the context of how people value companies or how they value potential acquisition targets, they're doing a lot of great um, research into the management team and the business model and the competitor set. But yet there was no thought to, does this company have a capacity to innovate? Do they have the capacity to anticipate and create their own future? And it would be so fascinating to go in and in addition to all the other, you know, more financial diligence, just understand like, what's the board's tolerance for risk? How many ideas have you killed in the last quarter? What's your pipeline look like? I think you get a, a, a really clear and fascinating look at this company's capacity to continue to be successful into the future, which as an investor, I don't know why you wouldn't want to know that. Um, so it's it's something that we're working on kind of behind the scenes and I'm exploring it in my PhD research. So design diligence is really kind of another tool in the investor's toolkit, really to understand a company's capacity to adapt, to anticipate, um, and to create their own future. Have you asked the company those questions? And if so, were they prepared for that? So maybe this goes back to our data versus storytelling discussion, where there's such a preference for data that they perhaps don't see how this is useful or going to produce data that they can then fit into a model, right? So that's another thing that I'm exploring is I think there's a lot of a lot of understanding that these tools work, but not an understanding of how to integrate them with the very strong organizational processes that already exist. And that's the challenge, right? It, 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 it is less about having the good idea. And this is probably true for most innovators out there. It's that, the, coming up with the idea is relatively easy. Figure out how to integrate it into you know, well-established corporate systems and ways of thought is very, very difficult. And sometimes that involves translating what you call things or how you pitch things or even just understanding the process itself and figuring out where in the process um, you can interject. But that's been the interesting challenge. So still working on it, but hope to report back soon. I wonder the things that you just said, is it possible to give an example of that? Like calling something something different and how that affected the project or what you're trying to achieve? So perhaps my whole career has been calling what I'm doing something different, right? Because, and, and, and that's not saying that I knew more than anyone else. Oftentimes I didn't necessarily know the full extent of, you know, the theoretical backing or the definition of what I was doing. It's like, I have a hunch that we could probably approach this a little bit differently. Let's explore. Oh, what did you know? That's, that's called design or prototyping. Um, and it's depending on the group you're talking to. I actually think that's one of the core capabilities of design. And this is something that I've explored in, in the capital design is the ability to mediate. So if you think about it from a, uh, an innovation standpoint, this capability often shows up as customer interviews, right? Like you're able to go into someone's space, understand their world, you know, understand how they're using a particular product or service, and then translate that back to marketing team, the product team, the business team, you know, translate the customer's needs back to them in, in a way that's like, oh, I didn't know I needed that, right? This whole translating and mediating skill is really important. So I've leaned into that and often, you know, I, I rarely use the term design in an investment context just because people don't know what it is or they'll think it's interior design or graphic design. You can just call it strategy, right? Effectively, it's the same thing. Um, or, you know, risk is a great example. Talking to the risk folks who, who are actually, I don't think they get enough love. They are very attuned to these kind of big picture, longstanding systemic trends um, and it's really just about like risk allocation and sorry, risk assessment and resource allocation. Like that's really what a good innovation process does as well. You de-risk something to the point where you're, you're building minimum viable products. You're not spending a ton of money. Like there's a lot of commonalities and figuring out what common ground do I have with these different groups, with the legal team, with the risk team, you know, with external parties. Um, this translation effect is very, very powerful. And for people to lean in and say, okay, the words we're using are different, but the goal is broadly the same. So let's start with that, right? I think design innovation on one side, investment on the other side, both of them wanting to create value, thinking about the long-term, trying to manage risk. But that's a great starting point for what otherwise looks as two totally uh, different mindsets and ways of thinking. I think picking up on your sort of almost maybe trends versus the long-term thinking and or the risk within that, 
as someone who has a keen eye for trends, what do you think is overhyped right now? And is there anything that you think is interesting and it isn't being picked up by the mainstream? Well, I appreciate that you think I have a keen eye for trends. Um, but I think as we discussed, I always look at what's not changing. And I'm so far removed from the hype cycle you know, that, that I couldn't even comment because I think it's a loser's game getting caught in that trap. However, with that, I think we're being massively overserved by the products and services that we have today. So innovation by and large, I think at the societal level is still focused on the wrong things, right? I don't think we need another $100,000 electric car with the most advanced technology. We really need a $20,000 one that's repairable at home, has range, is good in the snow. So it's classic innovators dilemma stuff where I'm not looking at the trend itself. You're just looking at what's the underlying archetype of this thing here. And I, I see innovators dilemmas or I guess opportunities for uh, new businesses, new interests to come in at the very low end of the scale and just meet all these needs that people are like, I don't need a phone with 500 different features. I just need something that's cheap, reliable, doesn't break when it falls. And, you know, I, I can throw it in the water and, and I don't have to worry about it. Like there's a, and this is happening at societal level, but I also, I also don't want to you know, neglect that there are people working on really important challenges like upgrading our electricity grid, but it's stuff that's not seen uh, and it's not talked about because the the space is all taken up by whatever is the new next big thing, not some of these longstanding underlying improvements that have been happening for a long time and will continue to happen for a long time. In sort of almost like your personal opinion, if you could focus energy on one of those, you know, core things that you think we should be focusing on, what would you pick? From the underserved area? Yeah, I mean... I don't know if this is possible because I'm not an electrical engineer, but my father-in-law has an old Corvette, right? And he can fix it with, he can fix the entire car with the stuff that's in his garage, basically all bought from Canadian tires. And I'm wondering if there's an opportunity to build an electric car that has the same capabilities, right? Where with a little bit of electrical knowledge and the right tools, you could fix it yourself, right? And, and I think that opens up a door where there's also a big societal change that needs to happen behind that. Like the old Sears catalogs, 100 years ago, you know, 50 years ago, used to come, like if you ordered a washing machine or a hairdryer, it would come with like an exploded diagram of the circuit board in that hairdryer because it was very well expected that you would be fixing it if something broke. He's like, oh, I just go to the, you know, the store and get this little switch and solder it on and no big deal. So it, there's a there's a bit of innovating in the product itself and then innovating in as the customer and the customer's behavior, what the expectations are to continue to repair and upgrade that thing. Um, you know, I, I, I look at it in terms of like houses as well. There's a lot of houses and cities I think are very similar where you have these old historic cities and homes that started out as something small and then just constantly evolved and everything evolved to meet the needs of the thing next to it. Right. And that's why you have these really cool farm homes that have these additions like that span decades, they just look so unique and so interesting. And then you have these modern master plan cities and really these modern master plan communities with, where every home is the same and they're basically like unrepairable or it's very difficult to add an addition. Um, you just lose so much of that human creativity and you lose a lot of that adaptability, which I think we'll need going forward. The ability to constantly change things as conditions change. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. I think on that point of always adaptability, I know that you've been working in quite highly regulated potentially quite kind of conservative industries. I, I was wondering, what's your experience of making change happen in those kind of industries? And what advice would you give people working in regulated environments to ensure their ideas sort of land? I've learned this the hard way. Don't fight the system. Work with the system. These highly regulated industries are highly regulated for a reason. And often this conservatism is really a driver of their long-term stability. So as an innovator in these organizations, 
find ideas that play to the strengths while also demonstrating that stability is not the same thing as stasis. Um, so often these massive companies, institutions, or organizations, you know, seem to move as slow as glaciers, you know, when you're in the moment. But if you look at the impact that a glacier can have as it moves, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And also the absence of a glacier also has a significant impact in thinking about why these regulations are in place to prevent the absence of that organization. Very, very, very important. So rather than being a downside, I see that these highly regulated, you know, very stable organizations um, are massive leverage points to make systemic change. You just have to pick your spots and play the long game and think about it in a totally different way. And as my favorite book, The Finite and Infinite Games says, you know, it's not about winning the game, it's about continuing to play. Can you go into that little last bit of a bit more about playing the game? So these organizations, I think there's some some people have the winning mindset, right? We have to win the game, but what is the game? Who are your competitive set? Like it's it's just not the right way to think about it. And then whatever you're trying to do with this win mindset as an innovator, you're always going to be at odds of what the true purpose of that organization is, which is just to keep playing, right? There's, I think there's very successful kind of CEOs and executives that win by not losing. And just staying in the game is is vastly underappreciated, right? In something where it's like, who can get the most, who can get the most to, you know, a million in revenue or a million users versus who could be the longest in business? I think there's, that's this, we should have an award for these extremely durable companies that have been around for a hundred thousand years, right? They just found such a deep human need and in a really elegant way to solve it. That's that's fantastic, right? And I think all of this ties back as we talk about capital, the ability to influence, you know, our economies, ecologies, societies, these big institutions, you know, pension plans, insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds, or all these type of highly regulated, very stable organizations. And we need that. We absolutely need that. Um, and perhaps capital design is a way of helping people innovate within those contexts because they have really good processes, really good risk mitigation. Sure, they can do things a little bit differently, but if you open up the opportunity set to them and understand how to work in those organizations, you could be massively more successful than you know going in and trying to break things and then you know leaving after three years. I think these kind of uh, companies that have lasted so long and of showing their longevity they're very underrated like you said i mean they're just seen as like oh you know they're trusty they're not that you know exciting but then if you think about them they're just like oh it's maybe they call them just like it's a brand i'm like no if you think about that on a deeper level what has gone into that having so much longevity then it just becomes a whole different like you begin to appreciate them more I never thought I'd say this, but maybe this is some advice to people starting their career, but boring is beautiful. And I know it's really cool to want to go work for a sexy organization that's small and nimble and fast, but like sometimes you can make the biggest change in some of the most old school industries. And there's a there's a big trend right now, um, you know, I know in search funds and you know, entrepreneurs going and trying to find, you know, these these companies that have been in business for 40, 50 years and the founder is looking to retire and just to go in and build on what they've already done. You know, the biggest ball bearing manufacturer or someone that makes, you know, fake grass for backyards, like just some really obscure thing that actually meet a huge industrial need. And you can, you can innovate within that space and, and you already have the durability and the customer set and the reputation and just the ways of knowing, right? That institutional knowledge is very difficult to replicate or to start off. So use that, like use that as a strength. And, you know, that's, that's something that every innovator will be well, you know, serve to remember is don't discard the people that have the institutional knowledge. Like oftentimes, like they are the biggest innovators because they've come up with the hacks and the, you know, the background, different ways to get things done and keep the the place moving. Uh, and, And they know it better than anyone. And it's that institutional knowledge that real gravity that these organization has is is vastly underappreciated, right? And I think that goes to what we were talking about, part and parcel with capital being one of the most powerful forces. I think that comes through these big funds. Um, and we should be doing everything we can to help them constantly evolve. No, exactly. And we, people don't tend to, um, to think of these brands 
because they're just they're mundane in your life. I was reading something about you know this, the monopoly in people zips like in coats and jeans and you kind of just you forget how long they've been there because you just don't even look at them much anymore. My my dad has been an insurance salesman for thirty years. I remember you know he would put us to bed and go back out and literally knocking on doors selling life insurance, wearing out shoe leather. And we had so many conversations around the dinner table about personal liability and umbrella policies and reinsurance. And I know so much about that industry. And I was like, this is the most boring thing in the world. But now I've come to appreciate it's the most amazing thing in the world because it's effectively recession proof. I mean, everything else could happen and you can't cancel your car, your house, your life insurance. It provides a real interesting psychological safety net in addition to a financial safety net. Like they are the ultimate risk mitigants. And and I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that has come from just insurance and actuarial ways of thinking. So yeah, I never would have thought that insurance, you know, probably one of the most boring aspects of the economy is so vitally important and actually so vitally interesting if people want to get into it and, and really see how they can test their metal. Definitely. I guess you're very much selling the insurance uh, industry where a lot of people don't, wouldn't. So I think it's a cool way of thinking about it. But yeah, um, okay, so moving on to what I call the fun part. It's the quick fire okay. question. Um, yeah, I mean, they're a bit, they're not your usual questions that you'd ask, and it might take you a little time to think about them, but just almost first thing that comes to your head there's a it's a wide range of questions. Here we go. Uh, okay. Number one, what is it about your industry that you love the most? There's two things. The first is there's a real person at the end of the line. Mike is a pension. There's a grandmother who relies on us. It's not some abstract shareholder. It's a real person. Many of whom I've met sat in their kitchens, pet their cats, you know, and looked at the retirement forms that they were asked to fill out. That brings it home. And at the same time, what I just talked about, the capital of these institutions, you have such capacity to make system level change, right? Through capital allocation and through the influence and, and the strategy and the communication with the people that we do business with. Um, both of those things, so one very, very granular and one very macro, equally important. And how they both come together, you know, zooming in and out, how, how much you like. We can tell you when you like it. Um, okay, number two. What title would you give your biopic or autobiography? Playing with the rules. Can you expand on that one? This is another little nugget from, again, the book that I can't recommend enough, Finite and Infinite Games. Whereas I said before, the goal is not to win the game, the goal is to keep playing. There's another little sentence. It's the goal is not to play by the rules, the goal is to play with the rules. How very, very interesting. Um, and let's say that it was a biopic about you. Who would you, who would play you in your biopic? This might be uh, very specific to anyone who was in university the same time I was, but Zach from the OC, the, the television show, the OC, um, there was a guy on there who everybody said looked like me. So he's kind of my, my alter ego. You might have to look him up, but yeah, Zach from the OC. Good to know. Good to know. I'll have a Google a bit later. <laughs> um, okay, next question. What do you do when you're not working? I am either training for ultra marathons, writing my PhD, or playing Lego with my sons. I guess we could expand on all of those things. Uh, why ultra marathons? Why not? I mean, it's one of the most primal things you can do. Like, self-powered locomotion through the trails uh i i live close to the bruce trail here in canada it's about 900 kilometers of unbroken trail from niagara to topramori so i love doing that and, and it's not really about the races the races is just a phenomenal community of you know basically hippies who just will eat gummy bears and chips and coca-cola while they're racing but you get to spend long times long times out on the trail, you know, four or five, six hour runs in training just with your own thoughts. And it is a very meditative state. 
been around with music. Um, and you just get to explore places that you, you never thought that you could reach on foot. So to give context, I'm training for, I ran a hundred kilometer marathon ultramarathon last year, and I'm training for a 125 kilometer marathon, sorry, ultramarathon with about four and a half kilometers of elevation gain next year. How did you get in? Were you always into running or has this come about? Well, I never ran. As of two years ago, I never ran. I always played hockey. So the longest you would be doing any type of aerobic activity is like one minute. And I still don't consider myself a runner, which is perhaps funny. But I got into it on a friend's recommendation. We were training for something else. And I said, like, I kind of like this trail running thing. I'm just going to start. And then every every time, this is how it happens, right? You do, you're like, maybe I'll do, maybe I'll do a 10K race. And you're like, well, there's a 25K race. I did the 10K. And then like, well, I did 25. Might as well just do 50 and see how it works. And then 50 turns into 100. And then 100 turns into you know, 100 miles. And next thing you know, that's your life. I'm not so sure about that. But <laughs> having just done 5 and 10K is my limit, I don't think that that maths up to be, you know, 100K, it's fine. Well, and maybe this is a good example of it's not about winning the game. It's about continuing to play. So it doesn't matter how long you run. I think there's more, I think more people should be celebrated for longevity in sports than absolute achievement, right? Because the ability to go in, go out day after day, month after month, year after year, and continue to do it and know when to pull back, know when to push forward. Um, in many ways, you always see innovation is a sprint, not a marathon. I think neither of those are true. I mean, it's probably more akin to an ultramarathon, right? Because if you really understand the differences between those two sports, um, an ultramarathon, you are going to fail at multiple points during the race. And that's the whole point, right? Where Versus a sprint, you have so little time, you're done quickly, and it takes an extreme amount of energy with high pressures. A marathon, one mistake, and effectively your race plan is done. But an ultramarathon, when you're running four, five, six marathons back to back to back. They call it life in a day. You are going to succeed. You're going to fail. It's how you manage, how you recover. And I think it's a lot like innovation where you're constantly pivoting, adapting, taking in new information. Sometimes you need to motivate yourself. Sometimes you just get naturally inspired and all the pieces end up coming together at the end. But you really, you really get to see what you're made of and you really get to go to those interesting depths and see that I think we're just touching a fraction of our human potential in the same way with innovation. And that's why I love design. It's just our ability as humans to contemplate alternative futures and say, why that, not this? What do I need to do to get that? And let's make it happen. I absolutely love the way that you just tied those two together. Um, and I hate to say it, but you're actually selling ultra marathons. I don't, I mean, I guess a marathon's the first step, but the way that you pitched it, I'm like, wow, okay. It's fun. But on the other side, okay, so when you're all tired out from running your training for your ultramarathon and you're saying Lego with your kids, what are you working on? Anything fun? What was the last thing you built? With Lego? I built them a moon rover, but I tried, this is, this is me having to be in parent mode and I'm learning a lot where you it's it's like structured play for the kids where you don't want to give too many suggestions you want to nudge in the right direction but let them take control and it's fascinating i think not to tie everything back to innovation but to see the world through child's eyes like i never even thought about that that is a crazy good idea and just see the connections they make um it's it like really shows how limited or how how many blinders we have in orthodoxies and assumptions we have about the world around us that playing Lego with a child. And it's like, there's no reason why this can't be over here. That door can't be upside down. And you're like, okay, let's roll with it. And let's see where it goes. It's an iterative style of play. That's very akin to kind of design or innovation, or even just thinking through things like, okay. And then what? Okay. And then what? Okay. And then what? I think it's so important for sort of adults to relearn that in terms of play and, you know, bending what you think is normal, fine, and how things should be is like, oh, and now I guess you could you could put that upside down. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And and it, it is interesting, and I don't think that it, adults get this enough in their life, doing something for the sake of doing it with no outcome expected, right? Like, 
everything we do, whether it's school, you're doing a test, your work, you're doing an assignment and you're getting paid or a race you're running. Like we have all these goals and objectives and productivity hacks, but doing something just for the heck of it. And then you got to destroy it and put it all away before bedtime. It's fun, right? And I think it, it does humble us and ground us. I think almost we need more of the safe space to do that in our lives, to be able to be like, right, this day, weekend, just, you know, experiment, play with all of that. And then, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't affect anything. That's, you know, something to remember. And then we reset and then you can go back to it and you take your, your reflections from that time and then apply that to your life. You know, playing Lego with my son was one of the reasons that um, I got onto the idea of what we were talking about earlier of this whole idea about climate change needs more narrative and less data. And he got this Lego set and it was like a gas fueled car with a little gas station. And I'm thinking, like, how different would the world be if every kid just had little windmills and chargers or whatever that may be, where you don't even have to make an argument. They just grow up expecting that that's the way the world should look. Um, and the limitations that we as adults have imposed don't actually need to exist. Uh, and you can only see that playing through their eyes. With like, why is this guy, like, where does the gas come from? It's like, honest, good, good question. I don't know. Like, why? Let's look into it. And I am happy now he has a little electric car Lego set. Um, but you like small changes like that, where you can totally change a generational view of what to expect from the world through play. That reminds me of... Um... You know uh, the D Disney Pixel movie, Wally. Yes. Um, and how you know it was all—it's all entertainment, fun and games. But then you get to the part where you're like, as an adult, you may be going, "That's not right." And also, that's where we're heading if we keep going this way. It gets yeah. thinking in a fun way, and then it's, the kids are just saying, "You know, that's obviously not where we want to head. That's obviously wrong." And it's like, as adults, we're like. We, we are still heading that way, but you might think it's honestly wrong, but I guess how do we change that? Yeah, good question. But I mean, speaking of things you could change, if you could reinvent yourself, what would you change, if anything? You know, I don't, I don't want to be that guy who challenges the question, but I've been constantly reinventing myself in fact that's probably the only thing that i ever do like i was thinking i would probably never get a tattoo because i can't be sure that i'll like or agree with that thing like a year from now and i think that's healthy speaking for myself but to continually grow to continuing to change to continuing to take in new information and say does this change my beliefs like am i still doing the things that i value um I'm constantly reinventing myself. And I think that is one of the skills that will set us apart from, you know, when they invent artificial general intelligence is human capacity just to continue to adapt, continue to reinvent, continue to grow, continue to learn and be very flexible. And I've had a, you know, as we talked about before, like a not very linear career path. And it's been beneficial because you can see the same issue from multiple angles. And if I said, no, I'm only this, I'm only X type of person who can only do X things. Uh, I think it's very limiting. And just, I mean, I'm curious though, do you have, have you had periods of your life where you've like intentionally sat down and reflected on this? Or has it just sort of been an ongoing process little by little and you've changed and then you can like, oh, I guess I am different. Or have you sat down and said, you know, what I want to focus on health, fitness, or what can I change around this? Or what can I do around? It's a good question. I, I try to be intentional. And a lot of this happens when you're running. You just have lots of time to think. And it's kind of an annual, biannual, you know, spring cleaning process to say, am I on the right track, generally speaking? Am I doing the things that I want to do? Am I challenging myself? Am I, am I too comfortable? Or am I totally out of my element? There's a sweet spot there. Um, and what can I do within my current situation to continue to grow? What can I do to add to that? And as long as everything is complementary to the next thing, like I try not to go totally off and, you know, I'm going to go learn the trombone tomorrow. That might not be additive, but everything has been subtly, uh, 
you know, helpful and complementary to the other things. But some of it, opportunity is just being in the right place at the right time with the right mindset. You have to be open to those too, not be beholden to, you know, whatever preconceived notion of a plan that you had. Of course, as much as you want to plan for something, a whole life event can completely change your plan. Okay, right. So we start again. Sure. I mean, life is very similar in, in many ways to innovation in that I think a lot of people's view of work is inputs and outputs are equal, right? Like one hour of work equals one unit of productivity. And it's just like, it keeps going up. We equals one hour of pay. Like it, it wouldn't really, there might be some jobs like that, but I, in the innovation world, and this is what I've always had to convince my bosses of is it's like zero, 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 95, right? You, you just go like, it's, it's very binary and lumpy and not working is actually working in the sense that you're letting your subconscious process and really think deeply about some of these. And then you come up with these breakthroughs that aren't the result of iterative thinking. It's just like a new brainwave that came and connected two totally disparate ideas. And you're like, okay, that's the way forward. Let's go try that. Uh, and, and life too. I mean, there are, you know, some things build on the last one, but sometimes you have these opportunities that just take you into a totally different stratosphere, um, you know, financially, intellectually, relationship wise, that to be open to them and to recognize them. Because one thing that I've always been told, and it's been great career advice, is don't mistake big change for big risk. Where it's remarkable how little credit we give to ourselves for how adaptable we are as individuals and as society. And I think people like moving houses is a great example. Oh, like I grew up here, I can never move. But then you do move, and then two weeks later, you're totally attuned to your new neighbor. You're like, I love it here. I could like, why did I wait so long? And like I was reading um, this book, Endurance, and it was about the Ernest Shackleton faded expedition where they went to go try to go to the South Pole and these boat got crossed and they spent a year like on an iceberg. And it was looking through some of the journals of these guys who were basically eating like nothing but dried biscuits and seals for like 365 days. And one of the journals, the guy was like, oh, you know, like sun's out breathing fresh air, nice day. Like things not so bad. Like you've been on a glacier for two years and yet you can still have this positive disposition. Um, we're really good at that, right? Like, so to sort of lean in and embrace that. And I mean, in that case, that was big risk and big change, but for people making career moves, for people taking risks at work, for people putting that next big idea out there, um, you just want to be very clear what's in the risk bucket and what's in the change bucket and make sure that you're clear on both because they're not necessarily the same thing. I think that's so important. That's something that I think anyone can apply anytime in their lives, whether they're just starting their career or whether they're almost kind of towards the end thinking about what they're going to do maybe post-working. Okay. You know, um, that's, that's a real opportunity to bring in, you know, foresight future scenario planning where you can map alternative futures in concert with the current way of thinking. And sometimes you may see that the current way of doing things is actually the riskiest way. And then you're like, okay, now I have a little bit more confidence that this thing is probably an even better idea. Like change is actually the safe option here. Do you have an example that you could kind of illustrate that with? The, the, I think the house moving one, cause I'm going through that personally, but might not be relevant to the users. Even honestly, even like mapping it out and having those conversations with yourself using a simple two by two, what are the two biggest unknowns that I have? What are potential scenarios? Once you map them out, including the one that I have today, just gets you thinking outside of this linear, you know, the future is going to be more of today. Um, uh, the best design tools and the best designers are able to break that link with the past and with the future and envision something totally new and then kind of work back and see if they're connected and they may not be. But you don't want to fall into the assumption and, and limit yourself um, from potential other choices that you have. Like It's, it's really a, a choice creation exercise and then you can go into the decision making because I think people often default to, I'm presented with these choices, I'm just going to take them as they are and I need to make a decision, not are these even the, the full set of choices I have? And am I looking at 
these with the right lens. I think that's brilliant. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And a lot of, yeah, like, like you said, a lot of people don't even consider that. So it's about being creative and then dialing down. But yeah, I guess moving on to our last question, and it's a question that we ask everyone, and it's quite interesting the answers we get. Um, on a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? I'm as weird as I need to be. So it's all relative, right? I'm usually the token designer in a room full of capitalists or the token capitalist in a room full of designers. To some, that might be really weird. But I can be a chameleon or I can dial up or dial down the weirdness so maybe that's my my best trait i like to think i'm pretty weird but i think that's a i'm probably pretty average could be a one could be a 10 averages out it's a room it's all it's all depending on who you hang out with right like in the in the ultra marathoning context i'm looking at people that are running 160 kilometers or 200 kilometers i'm like man they're weird like that's crazy. And I and I'm so normal compared to them. And then people at work look at me like, dude, you're so weird. What are you doing? So again, it's it's all relative based on the people that you hang out with. No, I mean I'd agree. I'd agree. That's good. That's good. You can be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten at the same time. Never thought about that. I'll have to try. Perfect. Well, thank you so, so much for your time and your insights. I've had a great time listening to you and all of your analogies has very much cleared a lot of most complex ideas into something that's like, oh, obviously. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast nowhere at your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.